Hi, this is Dr. Cameron Thompson, and you're listening to the Marchese di Carabas podcast. to, um, before I really launch into it, be clear that the title of this talk, right, as, as you know, this is not, you're, you're clear already on this part, the title of this talk is Created for Greatness, the Power of Magnanimity, um, or something to that effect, I, I forget the exact words. What I want to be, be clear on is, what, is, what does this mean, uh, to some sense? Virtuous leadership, where does it come from? Before we answer the question, what does it mean? Um, the, the concept of virtuous leadership really is, is millennia old in sense of the virtues, right? You're familiar with Aristotle uh, and, and you know, his, his development out of articulating about the virtues. You've read the ethics, or at least you're familiar with the ethics. And of course, immediately, the, part two of the ethics is the politics. So we need to keep those intention, that right or not intention, but together, understanding that virtue is not merely personal, right? But it immediately implicates the social and the political, the civic, if you will. Um, but the, the model of virtuous leadership was brought together really brilliantly by a gentleman named Alexander Havard, um, who, who I work with. He's founder of the Virtuous Leadership Institute, really developer of the idea. And he's able to take this whole, if you will, personalistic ethics and be able to condense it down into an articulable model of leadership, which is something that we speak about in our days. This concept of leadership as leadership in the way that we mean that is, is in some ways novel, but in some ways a representation of what has been around for thousands of years. Um, and, and in a particular way, we need to bring to bear everything that we know on the needs of our time. But before you can do that, it needs to be personal. So I want to begin without explaining too much to jump right in to something for you. To ask yourselves, I'm gonna take a moment or two, to ask yourselves what is it that you want to do, your, do with your life? So at the end of your life, put yourself forward, project forward to your deathbed. Many, hopefully many, many years from now. Could be tomorrow, you never know. That alleyway's a bit dodgy crossing it, I know. Um, it, it, it could happen, right? I mean, that's a healthy reminder that you are going to die and you could die at any moment. So none of this putting things off down the road. I'll figure out what I'm gonna do with my life when I grow up or something. Because there, there are 50 and 60 year olds who are still saying that to themselves. But, but to bring this, the immediacy of this home to you, Imagine yourself at the end of your life and ask yourself the question, what is it that you want to have accomplished? What will be your legacy? What are you building? What are you doing with your life? What is the story that you're telling with your life that you are leaving behind? What is the impact you want to have had on the world? What is the impact you want to have had on the world? This is a helpful way to make decisions, by the way, too. If you think, when I'm on my deathbed, which would I rather have done? It really you know, makes you focus on the priorities. But what is it you want to have accomplished in your life? 
You don't have to have a full answer to that right now, but begin thinking of that question, framing things, have that in mind here. So philosophy has always existed and to, to answer a handful of questions. One of the most important questions, of course, is what is a good person? What does it mean to be a good person? This is a picture I'm sure many of you are familiar with, Plato and Aristotle and a bunch of other philosophers, people you may or may not recognize, and somebody, somebody with fabulous gold hair uh, running off the scene just off the picture, which isn't included here. Um, but this is a piece of art from the Stanza della Segnatura in the Vatican, right? You're familiar with this. Give me some indication. Okay, because you're familiar with this. So you know this piece of art. You've seen this. You know it's, it's called the School of Athens uh, for some reason, actually, because an artist a few generations later decided to call it that, but it's not really the School of Athens. It's philosophy. This is, this is simply titled philosophy. And it's not a piece of art. It's a piece of a piece of art. It's only one portion of a piece of art. And this is important because it frames the whole context of what we're talking about here tonight. And so I will say, you see Plato and Aristotle here at the center of this portrait, there's this mural called philosophy. It's, in, it's, in a, it's on a wall in the room, if you haven't been in the room. So here we are, well, let's kind of put ourselves in here. It's on this wall here. Beside it, and I, I get these two confused, but one of them is jurisprudence, and the other one is the arts. It's, it's Mount Parnassus. Right, with Plato and the Muses there, or not Plato, excuse me, with Apollo and the Muses, Plato's behind me looking over my shoulder, uh, with Apollo and the Muses on the wall. And here we've got philosophy, exactly opposite philosophy is theology, often called disputation of the Eucharist, or the disputa or something. It's, again, it's a silly name, it's, not, it's theology. And so we've got something representing philosophy and something representing theology. Now, we see here with, with Plato and Aristotle, for the record, Aristotle's the one in the blue robe, Plato's got the red. Plato is pointing up. Plato is pointing up at the heavens. He's holding a book. He's holding the, um, the cosmological one. I can't remember that was in a slip moment. Timaeus, thank you. He's holding the Timaeus. He's pointing up in the heavens. He's pointing to the cosmos. And we see Aristotle. Aristotle's holding the ethics. Aristotle's holding the ethics. And he's pointing forward. He's pointing forward. Actually, when you're standing in the room, he's pointing right at you. And, and we see this, there's this overlap between the two of them. Between Plato and Aristotle, you see this kind of yin-yang, you know, flux between their two robes, the red and the blue matching there um, as they point through. And that's, you've got this bringing together, this harmonizing of the macrocosm and the microcosm, the universe, the, the society, the world, and the individual person, right, represented by each of these two philosophers. And they're brought together and thrown outward directly towards you because the ethics is about what it means to live as a good person. What does it mean to be human, right? What's the, the rule book of being human? And he's pointing out this way. He's pointing to you, but he's also pointing beyond you. Because what is exactly opposite this image? This image is faced with the image of theology. And if you were to take as a vanishing point, and it is, and the vanishing point on this mural is that, is that center point where the two of them intersect, where Plato and Aristotle intersect, where the individual person and the macrocosm, the heavens, the world, and all of creation intersect here is the vanishing point. And if you took that and you expanded it out uh, like in the shape of a football, right, in the shape of American football, kind of conical, and then coming back together on the opposite wall in theology, the exact mirror point, mirror image vanishing point is in the Eucharist. So you've got, you know, the, the saints and theologians all standing around and the heavenly court up here, and there's the altar and they're kind of pointing, and there's that fabulous guy with fabulous blonde hair pointing like, oh my gosh, look at this. And he's pointing up there, right? And you see it and you follow him. And he's pointing, and right on the altar there is the Eucharist in a monstrance right there. The union of God and man, right? 
the perfect man, perfect God, Christ, the summation of everything. They're intimately connected because it's one piece of art. You see throughout this whole, it's the whole of human life, the whole of human culture brought together. And the Eucharist is the vanishing point and the summation, the culmination of everything. But the virtues are here in the natural realm. So when we're talking about the virtues, there are the theological virtues, the virtues that come from, they sort of come from heaven, they pertain not just to God, but coming from God. The linguistic difference isn't there in English. I'm familiar, but you, you, you get the idea. But the other virtues that we talk about are natural virtues. That means they are something in us as human beings. They're written into our nature. They're the, the sort of, I say the operating manual, but you know, an ethical book isn't a legalistic treatise ethics properly speaking, it's about what it means to be a human being. So the answer to the question of what is a good person is essentially a good person is somebody who is good at being a human person. It's not something above and beyond the way that we're made. Now, we recognize the reality of the fall. As Christians, we know this. We are flawed. There's an original sin, right? There's a weakness in our nature, but the nature itself is capable of these strengths. So this is not something supernatural. This is not something that we sit and wait to be infused by God as something super added to our nature, but rather it's in our nature itself, these, these habits, these virtues. So somebody who is a good person is somebody who is good at being a human person. What is a virtue? A virtue in a very technical definition from the psychological side of things, if you will, is that a virtue is a dispositional trait that is acquired by habit. In other words, it's a strength or a particular human excellence. So let's break apart each one of these here for a moment. Excuse me. A virtue is a dispositional trait. That is, it's a trait, it's a characteristic that you have. It's dispositional. So, so it's a trait, it's something that perdures, it's something that is consistent, essentially. You know, there's some fluctuation, but the idea is that it's not a one-off um, behavior that you have, it's a trait. It's dispositional in that it shapes you the way that you then approach other things. It disposes you towards certain, a certain way of being in the world. It's a trait that disposes you to behave in a certain way with some level of consistency. It's not something that you're born with, it's not part of your personality type, uh, it's not your temperament, it's your character, it's something that you've acquired. We acquire these dispositional traits called virtues by habit, by doing actions, repeated actions of a similar sort, right? And so you need for that both the, the knowledge and a model to follow, a model to, to imitate, and the opportunity to then exercise that virtue, to participate in this skill. The, the original word for virtue, virtus in Latin, means a force, a strength, like a force of gravity, right? Power, strength in that way. The Greek word, of course, that Aristotle uses is arete, which means excellence, right? It's excellence. So somebody who's a virtuous person is an excellent person. Aristotle, I mean, Aristotle and, and others mention in the same breath talking about a virtuous person and they talk about a virtuous knife, right? What is a virtuous knife? Is a knife that's good at being a knife. It's strong, sharp, and it gets the job done. The same basic principle applies to human beings, right? So, so it's a strength, it's a human excellence, it's an excellence at being human. And, and it's acquired, and it shapes you. These are the key things to a virtue. So what are the virtues of character? 
You're familiar, of course, with the four cardinal virtues. These are the four basic virtues. An interesting thing about these is that from a psychological perspective, that is to say developmental perspective, since we're not looking at an abstract treatise on the virtues, but rather the practical application of that knowledge into actually developing virtue, which is of course what Aristotle wrote the ethics for in the very beginning. He says, Nicomachus, if, you're not gonna, if this book isn't to actually help you become virtuous, there's no point in writing it, right? So it's not there to be studied, it's there to be applied. Um, but the four cardinal virtues are the four basic virtues. They function more like, it's, it's a helpful to understand them as being more like muscle groups, if that makes sense. So rather than an individual muscle, because yeah, virtue is a strength, right? Let's use the analogy of muscles. So the virtue of prudence is not a muscle, but it's a set of muscles. So the virtue of, of fortitude is not a muscle, but it's a set of muscles. And how do you strengthen a muscle? By exercising, right? You have to get into the gym and exercise. You need to train. Um, another helpful thing, we talk about a piano virtuoso, right? To, to put it in the context of skills, uh, is that somebody who is v extremely skilled at playing the piano, you got there because they practiced, because they did some very basic exercises and progressively got more complex and they developed a, an artistic finesse in playing the piano expertly. This, same, this is the exact same pattern of developing the virtue, in developing moral virtues, is that you start with small things and you grow and you become a virtuoso or virtuosa. This is, this is your moral life, should be like learning how to play uh, a piano and becoming a concert pianist or, or whatever is useful as an analogy for you, but I think you get the idea. So the four cardinal virtues you're familiar with. Um, the virtue of prudence is the habit of making the right decision. So remember, these are habits, these aren't values. An important thing to mention is that virtues and values are distinct in the same way that a map if you're going to sail at this, if you're going, you know, if, if you're in these, you know, 17th, 18th century, and you're going to sail at sea, and you get on a boat, you need a map, and you need to know how to read the stars, and you need to, you need the stars. Virtues and values are distinct and different in the same ways that the map and the stars are. Values are good, by definition, value is just the thing that you hold as important, the thing that you value, right? Which which can be often subjective, but values are something that are out here. Values are safe. They're out here, they don't, they don't implicate you personally. They're helpful in the same way that the stars are helpful for navigation. They're out there, but they say nothing about my capacity of actually getting the ship from port to port. That's the virtue, the skill in actual sailing. So the virtues also implicate you personally. If you tell me what your values are, you've told me nothing about yourself. But I can see your virtues or lack of virtues in the way that you live, in who you are, because not just what you do, but who you become, because these things are your identity. So the virtue of prudence is a habit, a habit of making the right decisions. Each of the cardinal virtues has, each of, these, each of the main virtues have essentially two dimensions to them. You might say a contemplative and an active side to them, although that's not strictly a fair way to categorize it, but two dimensions to each of the virtues. So prudence, habit of making right decisions, consists in deliberation, but also decision, right? Somebody who sits and ponders and deliberates and tries to figure out all the details and planning and decisions and weighing the costs and benefits of this, that, and the other thing, but never actually decides is not prudent. They're lacking prudence. Prudence has this element of decisiveness. It's not just weighing the options, but then making a decision and following it through. So under the, uh, the, the side of deliberation, 
we see that it's important to look into reality and to search for the truth. It's also important not to lie to yourself. We have an amazing capacity as human beings to deceive ourselves, right? So not to lie to yourself and not to merely follow cultural trends, doing things because everybody's doing them. That's the way things are done around here. But also seeking advice from others and developing the skill of, of how to sift through that advice. Because, of course, now with these things, you have all the advice you could ever want at your fingertip, more than you want, because you're up until two in the morning arguing with people over that advice, right? Or seeking out more information. And you can find, I can look up anything I want and find an answer that will fit what I want it to be, right? I mean, you can find these things. And so what do you do with so much information? It's just absolutely overloaded. You need to develop the skill of being able to sift through all the data that's being pumped at you all the time to discern what is the real signal and what is just background static, what is just noise that doesn't even need to be paid attention to. And then decisiveness, decision, that side of it, is to not expect certainty where it cannot exist. Not to expect certainty where it cannot exist. Some of you, oftentimes, when you're trying to make a decision, you wait till you know 100% all the things about the thing and what's going to happen. Well, guess what? You can't see the future. Nobody can. And you will never, ever know all the details because you're not omniscient, right? And you haven't been around for all eternity watching what's been leading up to this moment with everything that could possibly be involved in it. I mean, you'll never know all the details. You just have to make a decision. So not expecting certainty where it can't exist, in other words, like real life. And then overcoming your fear of mistakes overcoming your fear of mistakes. And also then to enact your decisions with dispatch. That is to say, there are some kinds of people, and you know who you are, <laughs> where you've, you've made a decision, at least you, in your own mind, you believe in your own self-reckoning, you have made a decision. I have decided I will but say, you know, the blue pants or the black pants. I'm gonna go with the blue pants. And, and you've, you've internally made a resolution. You've written down whatever the thing I'm gonna do. Yeah, there it is. All right, I feel good about it. And you're still sitting there, right? You haven't done the thing. You haven't really decided. You've made an internal commitment of sorts to the thing. And you say, oh, yeah, no, I've decided what I'm gonna do. I've decided what I'm gonna do. But until you actually take steps to begin carrying that out, that, that hasn't really followed through. So that comes back to the other part about not lying to yourself, right? You can't get away with it now. Not invincible ignorance, you've been warned, right? You've been brought awake to this. And not everybody struggles with that, right? But you know who you are, and now I know who you are because you're like smirking at yourselves and giggling. Um, and so, so when you make a decision, you need to then carry it out to enact it with dispatch. And prudence is essential for leaders because you need to, it begins with self-leadership, of course. You need to make the right decisions pertaining to yourself. But um, goodness, I mean, if you're going to lead other people, uh, and especially the complexities of, a, of an intricate system that is an organization of people, any group of people, you've got real human beings, immortal beings on your hands that you're responsible for. You better have that virtue of prudence, the habit of making the right decisions. Then there's the virtue of fortitude, or courage, if you will. We change the names and make them nice, more modern sounding. You like that, right? Anyway, it, the virtue of courage is the habit of staying the course, which has two elements to it. Actually starting the course, audacity, launching out, boldness, right? The ability to begin something, 
But then also the other side of it is endurance. The other side of it is endurance as putting up with things over the long term, pushing through the difficulties. Now, you may notice that you tend to struggle with one or the other elements, right? these two aspects of each of the virtues. Because we're made differently, and we'll touch on that a little bit in, in a bit, um, we have different predispositions, different sort of natural inclinations. And, and what goes along with that is that some of us will tend to struggle more with audacity and have no problem with endurance or have less of a challenge with endurance. And some of us will just naturally be weaker in the area of endurance but have no problem with audacity, with boldness. Same goes for prudence. Some of us struggle with deliberation because we're so quick to make decisions and put them into action. We're going to do the things and the people, they're going to go over there, we're going to do things. Whoa, whoa, slow down, think, right? Others like to think and deliberate and plan and make out spreadsheets and we're going to do all these things but you never actually do anything, right? That's your area of challenge. Because we're not all the same. We don't all face the same challenges in the same way. We all need to develop the same virtues, but we're challenged in different ways. So the element of the, or the dimension of the virtue of courage that is audacity is to check that your goals and means are, in, in checking that your goals and means are just, like have the boldness, the courage to actually investigate and have the, develop the, the habit of learning to run risks. You can't, you know, there's, there's a tendency in the way that we're, we're brought up to do things is to sort of hypothesize about the possible outcomes in a very utilitarian, consequentialist sort of way. Hypothesize about the possible outcomes and then, you know, take limited risk. You know, if, is this a high risk area or a low risk area? You know, decision, right? Do this option or that option. But the problem is, is that in real life, is, real life is so complex that you can't actually mathematically calculate the likelihood of something happening because it's the things that you can't predict often have the most impact on you, right? The things you can't plan out and predict often are the things that have the most profound impact to either uh, success or utter ruin, right? So you need to learn how to run risks. There's that virtue of prudence again in terms of what decisions you make, what is responsible risk taking that isn't just reckless behavior, but you need to have, cultivate that boldness to take risks, like getting out of bed in the morning, things like that. Because um, you never know where the road might take you when you step out onto it. <laughs> endurance, the element of endurance is the, the pushing through the difficulties, right? So you need to learn to persist in the face of obstacles because whatever you decide to do, there will be obstacles. Getting out of bed, but the floor is cold, right? Well, push through it, you know, things like that. Um, also faithfulness and patience, learning how to practice this because sometimes the difficulties and the challenges that we face in carrying out some action is not merely some sort of obstruction in our way, but the sheer boringness of the same thing over and over again, like water torture, you, know, you know, like little drops wearing away at the stone. To be able to push through the challenge or the obstacle of just the length of time that something takes to accomplish. And therefore to live each moment boldly and heroically, right? Not just wait for it, whatever it is, to be accomplished but to pull, bring your whole dedication and zeal into every moment is to carry this out. Self-mastery, formerly known as temperance, but because of various forces over the, you know, in the 20th century that has come to mean not drinking alcohol, 
which doesn't help. I mean, drinking alcohol helps, but anyway, that's, that's aside the point. <laughs> but we, want, we often want to cling to the idea of self-control. I feel controls these things, you know, and we're all very Kantian about this. If I can will through my sheer willpower, like my, you know, some sort of vice grip, I will, I will steer myself right. This is not helpful either. Because the virtue in itself really is about directing the passions. It's the habit of directing the passions, not merely restraining things, let alone restraining yourself, as though restraining your true self were at all a good thing. That's, that's bad. Usually when you're behaving naughty, it's not because you're being your true self. You're being your false self, an untrue self. Right? That's what it means to sin. That's what it means to be corrupted, is to be unreal, not more real, or some alternate thing as though, as though uh, sin or bad behavior or vices were, were real. They're not real. They're the opposite of real. That is, they don't exist. Right? They have real implications, but it's unbeing. It's not being, positively speaking. So self-mastery is just as much about driving forward and energizing the noble passions as it is about restraining your passions that are out of line. So you want to subdue the evil passions, if you will. You want to subdue feelings of envy and pride, greed and lust, pleasure, and, and unrighteous wrath, right? We need to restrain those things. We just subdue them, not just pull them back and stuff them in. This is not healthy. This, this will not work. But to then, to, to subdue those passions and also energize then the noble passions. Energize the noble passions like love, noble desires and ambition, seeking after high goals, and righteous anger. Anger is not a bad thing in and of itself. The passions are not bad, right? The, and, I, and I use the word passions and not merely emotions because the passions also include desires. Passions is the, the things that I undergo, the things that are responses in me to something outside, whether that's uh, outside in the strict sense or whether it's something that uh, I'm recalling to mind, right? You know, I think of this and then I get all angry, you know, that, right? That kind of thing, right? So outside, relatively speaking. Uh, or an impression of something from the outside, but it's a response to something other than yourself, right? So it's the passions, and that is the emotions, feelings, what have you, but also desires, but also the desires. So you can desire the wrong things, but you can also desire the right things. The goal of life is not to eradicate desire, right? No, no, it's to desire the good and not, and not, and not things that are bad, right? And this is so important to remember, and this is why this particular image is a very helpful image for this. This is a perfect, I think, one of the best depictions of self-mastery because of what she's doing that you don't see right now. Anybody familiar with this painting? Anybody recognize it? It's Judith cutting off the head of Holofernes. And that takes self-mastery, right? You know the story of Judith, what she did, right? So the, the, Jerusalem is, is besieged, and Judith, the devout widow, young widow, mind you, um, comes down from praying, and she goes into the enemy camp with her handmaid, because it's always good to bring a friend. And, and you go into the enemy camp, and, and, and you basically invite yourself into the enemy general's tent for drinks. And, and right, one for you, 
one for me, two for you, one for me, right? Until he gets drunk and he passes out. And she sits there stone cold sober and says, great, now let's cut off his head. Right, you know the story. This is, this is Judith, she does this. Yeah, good, good, strong woman. She not only has to restrain her fear, or subdue her fear, rather, because I would be, I'd be at least a little afraid if I were doing that, right? I mean, just a big burly guy, you know, hold on, friends, because the picture that you don't see too, I mean, you have a big beard, you know, grizzly, grizzly dude, he's been through a lot of battles, and he's going to try and tear down your city and kill everybody in it. Um, and, and, you know, he has no worthy intentions of you being there that night, and, and, and to have, to be able to hold your own, you need to subdue the evil passions, but you also need to energize the noble passions. You need the passions to do good. You cannot have virtue if you are not ignited, if you are not passionate about the virtuous action. If you have no emotion behind your action, you are not virtuous, you are a functionary. You're working at it, you're getting there, but it's not a virtue yet. But you need to energize the noble passions because shh, that takes a lot a lot of emotional strength to go in there, not just to subdue fear, but to follow through the act of cutting off Holofernes' head. Because I don't know if you've ever had to hack somebody's head off, but they don't come easy. Particularly a thick, sinewy warrior from the desert coming across to besiege your city. It takes some work. It takes some work, and I imagine she didn't exactly have like a giant exacto knife or a chainsaw or something. Like, you've, got to, you've got to go at this, and you see in the image that she's, she's sawing in, in many effects, and to carry through, because one hack, you think, okay, if it's just a quick swipe, that doesn't take, well, great, I can do that, you know, I'll get over it. But, you know, it's, it's gross, but we'll do it, we'll be fine. But to carry through the energy, the emotion that is required to do things that are necessary, that are good, but are unpleasant and difficult. You need the passions. This is why you need self-mastery and not merely self-restraint. You need to be able to energize the noble passions. Justice. Justice. Give the habit of giving to each person what is due to them, what is due to him or her. This entails an element of communication and an element of the working for the common good. Now, what is due to each person fundamentally at, at, at the very beginning, at the very least, is the truth. You owe to someone the truth. And thus, you need to practice truthfulness, sincerity, and simplicity. Right, truth can just as much be lost in, in complex, uh, you know, phrases, lots of words with saying very little, just as much as it can by a lie. Simplicity. And also empathy and friendship, cheerfulness. Love and mercy are all part of the virtue of justice. Friendship is part of the virtue of justice. Cheerfulness, empathy. An interesting thing about the choice of the word communication, here particularly, is that this slide was originally written in uh, Russian. Now, I don't speak Russian, but Alex Havard, who developed the system, lives in Russia. And the word he told me is, he sometimes put, the original English translation was communion. Because, as I understand, the word for communication and the word for communion, obshenye, is the same word. Which makes sense when you think about it. 
And you think, well, communication, okay, I kind of get how that fits with the virtue of justice, but let's go deeper here. How is that connected to empathy, love, cheerfulness, and mercy? At a very basic level, even, of communicating with another person, I'm communicating with you right now, and you are, some of you more than some of you less, are communicating back with me. And in this communication, there's a mutual interpenetration that's happening, right? We talk about this at a metaphysical level, you know, union of persons in an intersubjective nexus and all this. If you're into Hildebrand or, or you know, you get that, you're, you're familiar with that term. Wow, that sounds great. I love personalism. But in raw technical communication, what is happening? I am speaking at least at you, if not to you. I'm speaking at you and you're able to hear me through magic um, because somehow... Follow me here. Somehow, there is an idea, I guess here, because that's what we're conditioned to point to, or here, or maybe it's in my pinky. I don't know where the idea came from, but it's there. And I are, I, it, it moves the parts of my throat and my mouth where I breathe out and shape my mouth and my tongue and teeth and lips in a certain way that, that projects, I guess, air that moves other molecules that go in some sort of wavelength we call sound. And these things move and these particles hit and they bombard your face and other things. Eventually some of them penetrate. And even with like, and then you add this to the whole mix. I, the, I do not understand how this works, but a micro, it takes it in and then somehow now it's spewing my words out of that black box over there as a speaker. And somehow that's coming in and it's penetrating into your ears. And it's coming in, these, 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 these particles are hitting you and vibrating your eardrum. And somehow that's awakening some signal. And I say like red apple or something. And you're like, oh, a red apple. And you picture it. And, and you're seeing what I'm seeing, at least in some way. The thought that was here somehow found a way to, to crawl across space and time and, and multiply into all of your little heads too. And, 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 and I know that you're hearing me and you're understanding to some degree what I'm saying because then likewise, light, whether they're photons or waves, depending on how we're measuring them, hits your face, your faces, and bouncing off of that which actually gets really gross when you think about it. My understanding of the real physics of light is that it doesn't, strictly speaking, bounce off of you, but it actually enters into the matter, then rejecting out other latent uh, photony stuff, whatever, light juice, out of the thing <laughs> that then flies through the air and is, is, is entering into these, these uh, jelly balls in the front of my head. And, and, and somehow, and I'm seeing you, and so you're communicating with me. And in this way, you see we're entering into an interpersonal communion just through the fact of talking to one another. So it's very natural, of course, that the element of justice that is communication entails at a much deeper level communion of persons. And then there's also the element of working for the common good, right? Industriousness, doing good work in a good way. Uh, faithfulness in family life, being faithful to your family, and, 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 and the sort of generative fidelity that happens within that family life that can actually create new life and, and foster growth and cultivation of those lives. And then citizenship, that is working for the common good in your concrete specific um, polis, whatever that is. The, the unit in this case for you here would be first and foremost, primarily the, uh, the, the community of students here at ITI, right? And even in a smaller way, perhaps in your particular uh, dormitory apartment, right? They think in those ways is very tangible all of a sudden. And those are the four cardinal virtues. They're the foundation of leadership. They're what we say is necessary to be good. But it's not enough to be merely good. For too long, we have abdicated 
our responsibility for leadership. Christians for the last couple hundred years have almost consistently retreated from the public sphere, from society, because of a misunderstanding of humility and a misunderstanding of the relationship between nature and grace. And we know now, which we've known all along, but it's important to recall to mind that it's never enough to be merely good. To say, well, that's good enough is not good at all because if, speaking morally, right, I'm good enough. There's something lacking in that, right? I say I'm being content with the mediocre. And we've been embracing mediocrity to our detriment. It's not enough to be merely good to become good. In order to become good, we must also be great. We need something more than just the four cardinal virtues. Leadership is about achieving greatness by bringing out the greatness in others. Achieving greatness by bringing out the greatness in those that I serve. And in fact, bringing people out into greatness is itself the service of leadership. The first and foremost service of leadership is to help the people that I lead to become who they are meant to be, to put their skills and talents at the service of their mission that God has given to them, to become who they were meant to be and themselves to become leaders in the world. Because in society today, we see a crisis of leadership. There's a crisis in leadership. This is no surprise. And the crisis in leadership is a crisis of magnanimity. C.S. Lewis writes in The Abolition of Man about the concept of men without chests, without heart. He says in, in modern Western society, we see a great emphasis on the intellect, knowledge, even more so today than in C.S. Lewis's day. There's all this information that's available, all this, more information that'll make it better, more easier access to information that'll solve the problems. And, and a great emphasis on the passions, right? The passions are running wild. Now, we all know, if we understand classical philosophy, well, the ideal is that the passions are ruled by the intellect, right? The themos and the epithemos, or the irascible and concupiscible passions are ruled by the intellect, like a, a chariot rider on the, uh, you know, the two horses and the chariot, Plato's image, right? That kind of thing. But what you miss in that, when you go back and look at it, you see it, if you read those texts. But what we're often missing is the idea that the intellect doesn't just rule the passions, it rules the passions through the will, through the heart. And the problem is that the concept of will has been uh, distorted uh, in modern philosophy, which has impact on our daily lives and the way that we talk about will and willpower and all of that. What we're lacking is a heart. The heart is atrophied. That center, the core of your personhood is atrophied. It is the seat of all that is great in human potential. With that, though, means it's also the seat of fear, it's the seat of anger and the seat of anxiety. And so it's seemed safer to repress the heart, to not exercise the heart because it could be dangerous and we're afraid. And the problem is that when your heart has atrophied, when the core of you has atrophied, you don't have that strength. You don't have the drive. 
you don't have the arena wherein the intellect can rule, where the intellect and the passions can work in harmony together. You're lacking that, that throne, as it were. You've dethroned yourselves by allowing your hearts to become atrophied. And an atrophied muscle is easily inflamed. The heart of the person, if atrophied, will rapidly inflame when provoked, when poked by something. So we see in society cynicism, deep as existential anxiety, and a dragon's sickness, it was called dragon's blood by some of the early church fathers. The idea of this, 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 this slightest provocation, a spewing forth of wrath and rage at whatever it is and destroy the town, everything. You know, somebody stole my gold cup that I didn't know I needed until right now and I missed it, right? It's just like the summary of the Hobbit, right? Uh, for, you know, the story from, from Smog's perspective. Um, but you understand, you see this, right? You see this. You, won't re you don't even remember what the provocation was anymore, but we see this daily. Something has come up and all these people are very angry and if you're not enraged, you're not paying attention, something like that. Because this is all very much connected because when you haven't cultivated the virtues of the heart, when you don't have a strong heart, when it is atrophied, all it takes is a slight prick and that heart becomes inflamed and with, with wrath, with rage undirected towards self-destruction. And that resolves down then into anxiety, cynicism, scandal, fear, the inability to cope with the day-to-day -day things of, every, of uh, the realities of everyday life. The problem is pusillanimity. Right? The way to talk about the, the, there's a word for this atrophied heart. It's pusillanimus, right? Having a small soul, small breath, small heart, no drive. Faint-heartedness is often the translation. Right, so if you think, oh, I'm not, I'm not small-hearted, I don't just sit and embrace the mediocre. But then when something difficult or challenging presents itself to you and say, I don't know if I can handle that, that might be a little bit beyond my capacities. You're not wrong necessarily in saying that I have all the greatest sympathy for you, but that's pusillanimity. That's what it is, is faint-heartedness. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be treated with mercy. I mean, St. Benedict says in his rule, right, that the abbot should direct all things so that the strong have something to strive for and the pusillanimous don't have something that will crush them, right? That's, it's not so burdensome that the pusillanimous will be crushed. Right? He makes allowance for this faint-heartedness, for this pusillanimity. But if the problem is pusillanimity, what is the cure? Magnanimity. The answer is magnanimity. If pusillanimity is small-souled, small heart, magnanimity, which is like the Grinch, by the way, right? Yeah, two sizes too small. Anyway, and, and the, the magnanimity is great-heartedness, great-spiritedness. Magnanimitas, right? Magnus animus. It's the awareness and affirmation in action. This is a habit of the awareness and affirmation in action that you are worthy to accomplish great things. Magnanimity. The classical philosophers write about magnanimity. They say the magnanimous man is the one who considers himself worthy of great things. And the Middle Ages Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, radically deepens and transforms our understanding of the virtue of magnanimity by adding one word. He says the magnanimous person is the person who recognizes that they are worthy of doing great 
things, not merely to receive honors, but that if I am made in the image and likeness of God, I have amazing capacity for greatness in this world. And if you have access to divine revelation, you know that not only do you have that capacity, but you have been given the positive command to go and do great things to the ends of the earth, to bring the kingdom of God wherever you go. So magnanimity is the habit of striving towards great things. It has the element of contemplation, that is the awareness of, the, of your dignity, the awareness of your talents, and cultivating that capacity to dream, to actually spend time in silence interiorly to allow yourself to be moved by beauty, to encounter other people in such a way that awakens something in you, awakens a fire in your soul that says, I can have a dream of what could be. I have a vision of what I can do or the way that things can be in the world. And the other side of magnanimity is action. Not only awareness of your dignity, but the, the affirmation of your personal dignity standing strong when it, that is required of you. I say, I have dignity, but I allow people to walk all over me. This is not, you need to affirm your awareness of your personal dignity. You have to affirm your strengths and your talents, not just be aware of them, but now put them into action. Become aware of your strengths and your talents and do something with them. Don't just bury them in a little, um, what do you say, in a little napkin into the ground, right? Uh, with the coins, you know, the gospel parable. Yeah, okay, good. At least if you would have invested in the bank, that would be something. But, right, but you must do something with your talents then. And not only cultivate the capacity to dream and have a vision, but then to take that vision and to work tirelessly towards putting it into action. Take a dream and make it your mission. Not just to dream about it, but to put it into action. To say, this is a mission. This is a thing I will accomplish in the world not merely pining for the fjords or whatnot, and, and you know, you're just a dead parrot wishing that someday something would happen. No, you must do. The other virtue of the heart, there are two virtues of the heart, and they're two sides of the same coin. They're not opposite poles. You know, they're not opposite poles on a spectrum. They're really two sides of the same coin. If you will, like the two, you know, two sides of the heart, right? Two sides of the heart, magnanimity and humility. Humility is the habit of no... Of, Humility is essentially the habit of living in the truth. The habit of living in the truth. The truth about yourself and the truth about others. So it is self-knowledge and service. Self-knowledge, the awareness of our createdness, the awareness of our flaws, the awareness of our dignity, and the awareness of our talents. This is all humility. Flannery O'Connor, the great Southern American Catholic author, once was at a, a conference, and she's, you know, she's famous in her own day for being a writer, and so they asked her finally, so Flannery, why do you write? Why did, what, uh, you know, what brought you to this? You know, it's a question you might ask, right? Why do you write? And she said, well, the, the answer is very simple. I write because I write well. I'm good at it. And her audience was shocked and appalled at this hubris, at this lack of modesty. The lack of modesty, which of course is absurd because none of them would be there if she was a terrible writer, right? They're all there precisely because she is good at writing. And modesty, in the way that we mean it in English since, you know, sort of Victorian era, is not a virtue, 
Modesty is a necessity for certain people who do not have the virtue of humility so that they are tolerable to be around. <laughs> humility is a virtue, knowledge of yourself and then serving the others. So it's the capacity to see in the other person the fingerprint of God, to see in the other person then the image of God, to serve the person because I see them in God and for who they are as another incommunicable mystery of self, another I, right? I am a self and you are a self in a way that I can never fully grasp and I serve you in that. So we see that the four cardinal virtues are the place, if you have the four cardinal virtues, we can say that that is integrity. The virtues, habits of excellence of the intellect and the will the heart, the essence, the substance of what leadership is itself is in fact the virtues of magnanimity and humility in practice, put into action as a way of being. They are the essence of leadership. The four cardinal virtues are, are the foundation of leadership. They're necessary. They're necessary, but they do not constitute leadership. They do not, they're not sufficient for greatness. You would say, well, they're sufficient for being merely good. Yes, conceptually, but in practice, when you just aim at being really good, it's not enough. You need magnanimity and humility, and all of that is underwritten by the, um, the, the footings, the root foundation, that part of a building that's buried deep into the ground of foundational humility, that self-knowledge, that self-knowledge and self-awareness. So what is at the heart of developing the virtues of the heart. What is at the heart of magnanimity? That is to discover your mission. All the virtues you work on by practice, magnanimity, humility work a little differently. Because if I said earlier, if the four cardinal virtues can be thought of as like muscle groups, so like upper body strength or you know, leg strength or something like this for you know, justice and, and fortitude or something, right? They're, they're composed of different muscles and you do certain kinds of exercises to strengthen those kind of muscles. Well, if magnanimity and humility are the virtues of the heart, they are, I mean, the heart you exercise differently, right? Aerobic exercise versus anaerobic exercise, they're two different kinds of things. So you take a different approach to developing magnanimity and humility. The principle is still the same, progressive exercises of increasing difficulty to, to improve and grow stronger. But humility and magnanimity, because of the virtues of the heart, the virtues at the core of your personhood, play in a different way, if you will, in the world. And there's, with these virtues, especially magnanimity, a unique relationship with beauty. A unique relationship with beauty. And one of the most beautiful things to you, sort of existentially, is to live out, I mean, it's, I mean, you could say it's in an abstract way, one of the most beautiful things to you is your life well lived, right? Is your life well lived? And what that means is to live out your mission, to discover what your mission is, and to find that daily fulfillment in living it out, to be able to carry out your mission. And so you must find out what your mission is in order to put it into practice, not just to write it down on a paper and keep it safe, keep it secret. No, 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 no. no. It's not like something else that you might write or that you might read. Those books are safe. This is like the never-ending story. This book is not safe. 
It's not a safe book. And most of you are too young to have any concept of what I'm referring to. <laughs> and if I told you to go and watch that movie from the glorious era of technology, known as the 1980s, you, you, you wouldn't make it through the first scene. The special effects are special needs <laughs> effects. But the story's a book first. A book in German, actually, if I'm not mistaken. I highly recommend it, at least the English version, because that's probably what you can read. But it's good. The, the movie's actually better, uh, but in terms of the story. But it's not a safe book you're writing out of what your mission is. You need to discover your mission because it's a call to action, which means you need to do something, which means you need to change. And of course, a favorite saying of the recently canonized St. John Henry Newman is that to be perfect is to have changed, right? Uh, to live in this life is to have changed. To be perfect is to have changed often. Is to have changed often. And he's got a beautiful meditation, too, on the eternal stability of God, but my everyday changing. And you can't think that you can't change. I mean, don't, don't get seduced into that. Like, well, if I don't change, it'll be safe. No, you're changing anyway. You're, you're, you're rotting towards the grave every passing moment, right? I, that's, I'm summarizing in, in shorter words what Newman says in many, many words. Well, he, he says, right, you're everyday changing, whether you like it or not. Let's make it a change for the better. Uh, but it's, so it's a call to action. Your mission is a call to action to do a certain thing. It's distinct from vocation. Your vocation is a call to live in a certain way, a certain state of life. It's a certain way of being, if you will, right? To be in a certain way. Your mission is in some ways more subjective, is a call to do a certain thing. A call to do a certain thing. Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, is somebody you should become familiar with if you're not, especially now, Please, when you go back, look on YouTube, you can find his 1970-something speech at Harvard, one of the most profound things uh, in terms of its impact on the world, and potential impact on the world. Oh, please, do homework. Watch that. But Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a writer, um, and he spent many years in the gulags in the Soviet uh, under the USSR. He was sent to the gulags. And he wrote about his experiences why? Because he's a writer? Because it was safe to write? No. Because he particularly needed something to occupy his time? No. Because when asked by Alex what he would say his mission was, he responded, my mission was to be a memory for the people. Alexander Solzhenitsyn's mission was be, to be the memory of the thousands of people who have no voice because they died, they perished in Siberia, they perished in the gulags. My mission is to be a memory of the people of old Russia before the Soviets. This is what he said. And so what did he do? He wrote their stories. He wrote something to carry on that spirit. His job was just to be the vehicle for the memory that that memory might live on. That is a call to do a very specific thing. So your mission is distinct from your vocation. Oftentimes we may find ourselves thinking about discerning my vocation. You need to understand what your mission is as well, or perhaps that may be the way in which you actually discover your vocation. Because your mission is a call to do a certain thing. Now your mission is intimately connected, is inseparable from your story. Your story. Who you are. What is your identity? Your mission is really part of your identity. Your identity and your mission are bound up together as one. 
and that means you need to be able to tell your story. Begin to write down what is your story? Who are you? Where do you come from? What has happened in your life? What are the things that have shaped you? What are the, some of those profound experiences in your life? Who's had an influence on you? These things. You already understand yourself, who you are. If I ask you the question, who are you? You may not articulate it in terms of a story, but inside your brain, you're framing it already in a narrative perspective. We as human beings are narrative creatures. We understand our identity in terms of story. So you living life, you are storying something. You are storying yourself in everything that you do. Storying, narrating. You are narrating this. You are telling a story and you may find as St. Augustine found when he took up the, if you will allow me the term, essentially a therapeutic exercise in writing what we call the confessions, he is restructuring the narrative of his story. He's not just retelling the facts as everybody would point them out. Why else would he dwell for like three pages on some incident with a fig or Pear or fig? No, it's a pear, right? Yeah, it was some incident with a pear. See, even I got bored with it. Um, right. It was some incident with a pear in his pre-adolescent years that really is inconsequential, dude. Seriously, get over it. Um, because he's finding those things that are imbued with meaning for himself. And I would bet you anything that prior to sitting down and writing that portion of the confessions, he didn't think much about that incident. You see, you let things pass, but then when you sit down to write things out, to actually tell your story and perhaps redact it and retell it, that you discover new things. Some small little twitch on a thread somewhere that was meaningless until now. And all of a sudden it starts to grow and unpack and flower. So you tell us your story, be able to write your story. And I mean write your story, I mean this very explicitly. Sit down, spend some time writing about these things. To find out who you are, because you don't know who you are, and you're not, you are not who you are, but you need to become who you are. And you do that by discovering and carrying out your mission. One of the things that is a essential part of your story is your people. Who are your people? You're not alone. You're not some monad trapped floating in the ether of the Jersey State Turnpike. You are not isolated from other people, buffered from interactions with others. You are not self-created. You are a man or a woman with a history and a memory. Your story isn't about you. I mean, it is, but it's not only about you. Your story began a long, long time before you were born. You wouldn't be here if your mom and dad hadn't like crossed paths at the right, you know, certain day, or if that first date hadn't gone well, right? You wouldn't be here if your great grandma and great grandpa, and that's how many of them, you know, I mean, you've got four grandparents, so that makes eight great grandparents. That's a lot, and you start taking that back. It's a lot of people that things had to align just right for you to be here. There's a whole lot of story before you enter it, right? I mean, you could have gotten hit by a bus coming here today. Like, that's a part of your story that thankfully didn't happen. That's great, because you're here. Wonderful. Things could have gone otherwise. But there's people who live on in you. Many of you are Americans, 
and many of you are not. I can't, I myself grew up in America, I live in America, so I can't speak to other contexts. But I can say, and I'm sure the principle is true, I just don't know the historical particulars. But by way of illustration, you as Americans, the Americans, only were born where you were born because some crazy people who are about your age or younger had one motivation or another to hop on a boat and go across the Atlantic to someplace they don't know, possibly with family, possibly to meet family they hope they run into because it's not like they could just call them on their cell phone and you know open up WhatsApp and all that. No, to launch into the unknown and establish a life whether otherwise they didn't have a life. And you are in many ways, and this is true of all of us, you are the fruition of the hopes and dreams of aspirations of these people long dead, and they live on in you. And their stories have become your story. And your story began in them and so you were in them too, which is, of course, the biblical way of looking at um, ancestry and generation, is that you existed in them, and you do, and in some way or another, their influence lives on in you. I mean, you didn't make your own blonde hair. I mean, maybe some of you did with you know, chemicals, but you, know, you get the idea. You have more than just your physical traits and characteristics inherited from them or the influence that lives on in you, and it can be powerful. You are not only yourself. You must also know your temperament, right? We're all made differently. We're all made, fundamentally, we are the same. We are human beings. Let's get that straight, because that is often not straight. It's very confused, very confused. We are human beings first. We are not different temperaments. First. We're, not, we're not fundamentally different. We're fundamentally one. And human beings, of course, come in two general varieties called male and female, right? And, and, and sort of within that, there's, there's ways in which we are, you know, we can talk about the classical temperaments, the biological composition, the way that you are made certain natural inclinations that you have without getting too far into those details just now. Recognize that that's there. And you understand, you must understand what your temperament is because your temperament comes with certain strengths and certain challenges. By nature, in other words, to, another way to speak of it is to say, by nature, some people are, have an easier time with, um, some people are more prone to be action-oriented. By nature, some people are more prone to be idea-oriented. By nature, some people are more prone to be socially-oriented, and some people are more, to, more prone to be uh, peace and stability-oriented. Right? That's just that. And, and consequently with that, some people by nature are going to struggle more with humility than others. Naturally, that is a weak area for them. Some people are going to struggle more with audacity, with boldness than others. And some people are going to struggle more with magnanimity. And others are going to struggle more with endurance, sticking with the same thing even though it gets boring. Right, you know, that kind of thing. So we all have different challenges, but also with your temper, it comes different sort of things that you're naturally more inclined to than the person next to you, for instance. And to recognize in that this is also a gift and a talent that I can use to put at the service of others in carrying out my mission. Which brings us to the point that you need to discover what it is that you're good at. Now, most of you are just simply at a 
age in your life where you haven't done enough things to really know the thing, like, the th this is the thing that I'm amazing at. Uh, and some of you do. And some of you think you do, but your friends would probably tell you otherwise. Um, so your talent. Discover what those things are that you are naturally good at. Cultivate those. Learn to serve others with those in carrying out. Use that to carry out your mission. In trying to discern what your mission is, if you have no talent for art, it's probably not to be an artist, right? You know, I mean, just, you, there's a lot of people who could heed that advice who would be all better for it. But likewise, those of you who are good, maybe you should do it more, right? You know, spend more time at that and less at other, what for you are frivolous things. Um, like party planning or something, but maybe somebody's better at the social gathering thing and that actually gives great life to them and they're able to create these wonderful experiences for people. Do more of that. Serve people in that. If you're naturally idea-oriented, you have the capacity, like if you have more of a melancholic temperament, you've naturally got a gift to be able to see a vision for how things could be better for the true, the good, and the beautiful, and noble, and you need to begin to communicate to that to others. Really hone that vision for what could be. If you have more of a choleric temperament, you've got a great capacity for putting things into action. Help translate those dreams into action to organize people, to get them done. If you have more of a sanguine temperament, you're socially oriented and you've got this natural capacity to organize people around this thing. And, and you, like, you show up and people like, like a Disney princess, like animals just flocking to, like people flock to whatever cause you get behind because you're just so enthusiastic and charismatic. Great, you can serve to accomplish great things by getting people excited around, about the right things. And if you're phlegmatic, you bring a beautiful ability to, to be unwavered by almost anything and, 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 a, and, and a certain rationality to, balanced, uh, to bring balance to something to ensure its support over the long term. Like, hey, guys, a road trip was a fun idea. We're going to run out of gas, right? We need to stop and make sure that you've got a full tank, that, that kind of stuff. Like, there's ways that you can then carry out that mission. And then... With the idea of, and a corporate, I mean in the broad sense of the term here, corporate, a corporation, a group of people, right? A body, corpse, a body of people, is that an organization may have a certain mission, right? Many of you are going to enter uh, some working field or place or whatever, some business, whatever it is. You're going to be part of an organization. Guess what? You're part of an organization right now. You're students in it, some of your faculty and staff. Um, you're in an organization now, and an organization often has a mission of some sort. And your personal mission, if you're in an organization, say if you're working in a company or a nonprofit or whatever it is, your personal mission should be at least aligned with the mission of the organization. And let's assume that the organization is out for good purposes, has a good mission, is not nefarious and evil in some way. Let's just let's take that off the table right away. Well, that your, your personal mission needs to be able to be carried out wherever you are. Your personal mission needs to be able to be carried out wherever you are. And so oftentimes in, in working with uh, companies, with businesses, uh, you, you know, you, they, there is a question, well, what if my people discover their mission and it's incompatible with the work I want them to do here? Uh, that they're better off leaving then. They're better for, them to, for you to help them to discover their mission and help them find a role where they can fulfill it. Maybe it's not the position that they're in right now, but they can find another position, or maybe they remove to a different, they move on to someplace else where they're able to carry out their mission and your organization is to continue to carry out its mission because fundamentally the human is more important than the organization, right? Organizations, nations, states, 
These are not immortal. These things come and go rather quickly, right? These things come and go rather quickly. Human beings are not mere mortals. No, we, we, we go either the way of everlasting horrors in the end or things that if you saw it today, you'd be tempted to worship, right? Divinization, sanctification, entrance into the kingdom of God. You become a profound, but you do not die merely. You do not cease to exist. Human beings are immortal. Human beings have a much greater weight. Each individual person has a greater weight than any organization ever could. So your greatest work that you can carry out as a leader is, of course, helping the people that you serve to discover their mission. And leadership is, is a way of being. It is not a position, right? Leadership doesn't mean that you have all the power. Uh, no matter what your rank in society or place in organization, you are called to be a leader. And that is to bring out, um, so to, to achieve greatness by bringing out the greatness in others. And I want to then just close with something of a call to action. If I can bring this up, not pertaining to this specifically. But you must, I would urge you to discover your mission. And a good starting point is to go back to that first question that I opened up with. And that is to imagine yourself on your deathbed and ask yourself the question, in that moment, what is it that I want to have accomplished in this life? Begin to think on that and eventually you will begin to realize what it is that God has put you here, that has created you to do and to be in this world. And there is a, not famous in our day, but famous in his own time, um, Catholic bishop in the United States around the time of the uh, 1870s, 1880s, 90s, who said something that was true of his day, and I think all the more true today, to an exponential degree, and that is the need in the church and the need in the world today in this age, as in every age, but today as never before, is of men and women who will rise higher than others, who can see further than others, and who will take it upon themselves to accomplish far greater things than others. They need not be many. They never were many. But though the few, as they rise, they will bring with them the whole of humanity. Let that be the foundation of your mission. You are here not through accident, though chance, for some of you we might call it. It's not mere chance. You've been given an amazing privilege to be here at ITI. This is a time to go deep and to cultivate the virtues of character, to ignite you, to allow your heart to be ignited for greatness, to discover your mission, and to carry it out at the service of the church and the world. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Marquesa de Carabas podcast. I encourage you to reach out to me uh, across social media at C. Mikhail Thompson or visit the blog at CameronMThompson.com. And please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast and join me on this adventure and we can continue the conversation.